as we look around, I think there's a myriad of things that we could be discouraged by. More than perhaps any other time in my life, I have felt what I believe to be the judgment of God upon the world. Between an ongoing pandemic, rampant social and political division, the rapid rise of a post-Christian worldview with the fastest growing religious demographic being the, the nuns, and I'm not talking about the cloistered nuns of the Catholic Church, but the nuns of no preference. Also the unsolved problems in the lives of some of my airmen, just to name a few, and the effects that all of this have had on my family and I, as perhaps it has to at least some degree had its effect on you and yours. I've been closer to seeing God's judgment, I think, than I ever have before. And there just seems to be no easy answers to the kind of effect that that can have on any of us, despite theological understanding and spiritual maturity. And if we are living out our faith in the spirit of Romans 12:15, then we must weep with those who weep. And as much as I love that old hymn, alas and did my savior bleed. And despite the truth that it posits that it was at the cross that I received my sight. It does not accord with the balance that we have been called to in scripture to agree with the hymn's conclusion that now I am happy all the day. Can we truly be happy all the day? I mean, Jesus wept. We must too. We cannot be so out of touch with what is going on around us that we give ourselves over to a blind artifice of false happiness. In his book, Death in the City, Francis Schaeffer reminds us that it is possible to be faithful to God and yet to be overwhelmed with discouragement as we face the world. In that book, Francis Schaeffer looks at the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations as a guide for navigating the post-Christian world of his own time in the late 1960s. And therein he proposes that these two books show how God looks at a culture which knew him and deliberately turned away. And perhaps we could do no better than to turn there as well to make sense of what we see going on in our own time. Today we're going to look at Lamentations chapter 3 verses 19 through 33. If you don't have your Bible open to that, I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Lamentations 3. Go past uh, Psalms and a couple of big major prophets like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and you'll find this, this short book of Lamentations which chronicles arguably one of the darkest times in history, certainly biblical history. We're going to look at that to consider tragedy from a biblical perspective. And in so doing, we need not only remember our affliction, but we also need to consider God's character as we go through affliction. For despite circumstance, God remains faithful and good in troubling times. And he has a purpose for these times that perhaps goes beyond our comprehension. Therefore, we should humbly submit to the yoke of suffering and see such times as consistent with his compassionate will. That's the main idea of our text this morning. 
And there are no rejoinders. There are no yeah, buts about it. There's no argument that is going to stand against this call for us to submit. We cannot say, oh, yeah, but God, I I cannot endure this. As if somehow God is not loving in this. As if somehow God is not omniscient or all-knowing enough to understand and be sovereign over our circumstance. If he can take his people through the darkest time in history, certainly he can take us through our own time. Now, Lamentations was written around the time of Jerusalem's destruction in 587 BC. The powerful nation of Babylon had besieged the people of God. Death and starvation were everywhere. God's judgment had come upon God's people. Life was so desperate that starving mothers ate their own children. Can you imagine? All of this because of flagrant idolatry. The nation had largely turned away from God as they pursued every false God under heaven, going so far as to sacrifice their children to the gods of the nations. Unless we think that we are far from that, consider the many young lives electively aborted sacrificed on the altar of our own personal choice and convenience. And so I ask you this morning, has judgment come for us as well? God only knows. Either way, we would do well to study lamentations, readying ourselves to navigate our own dark days. And the first thing we need to do comes in verses 19 through 26. And that is that we need to pause and consider. And the first thing we consider comes in verses 19 and 20. We consider our affliction. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So Jeremiah starts his lament by praying to God. He asks God to remember him in his affliction because certainly Jeremiah remembers his affliction. It's indeed a harsh affliction. It's as bitter as the wormwood plant and it's as poisonous as gall. He's in the midst of this affliction. He's neck deep in it. His soul is continually remembering it. It's current for him. It's real. It's palpable. Now the world would tell you that your happiness is the greatest good. Anything that impedes that happiness should be gotten rid of in a Marie Kondo kind of way, right? It means that you're not only to rifle through your belongings and to determine whether or not each item that you have brings you joy, as Marie Kondo does on her show. No, it goes much deeper than that. Now the world would have you take that notion and apply it anywhere and everywhere. For instance, friends who take a different political stance or they postulate a narrative from an opposing viewpoint should be removed from your life, defriended on social media. Mercenary cutting off of anything painful is the true new normal of our day. But that's not what scripture says. Jeremiah feels his pain acutely and he asks God that he would remember him. And we would do well to remember our pain. We would do well to ask God to not leave us or forsake us in our pain. 
In other words, afflictions are not to be cast aside. Instead, they are to be taken to God. They must be faced, but they need not be faced alone. We've been called to not only look around us, but also to look up. Not only to look at our circumstances, however dismal, but to look up, taking our circumstances to the one who sovereignly and lovingly leads us through them. I want you to notice in these verses that Jeremiah's affliction is so bad that it affects his posture. Now, we all know, especially as we get older, that pain can and will affect posture. It says here that his soul is bowed down within him. In other words, he is bowed as a result of his pain in a posture of worship. This should be the posture of any believer who is in pain. The believer should be bowed down, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, in prayer. When your soul continually remembers your afflictions and your wonderings, the proper posture requires bowing in reverence to that great physician who's the only one able to heal the soul. And so we consider our afflictions, but that's not all we're called to consider because as the verses go on in verses 21 through 24, we're also called to consider God's continual faithfulness. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When you're afflicted, what do you call to mind? I think many of us at many times go no further than the affliction itself. We, we get angry, we get emotional, we get sad, or we self-medicate on entertainments and diversions, or we look for other means, perhaps more sinful means, of dealing with it. We cope in negative ways. But if we really want to get at the solution, we would do well to remember creation order itself, that there is one who is far above us, but he is not so far as to be distant. Because if he was distant, that would be misplaced hope. Now, Jeremiah hopes in the unending, steadfast love of the Lord. This is an intimate, deep, abiding love of closeness and care. I want you to keep in mind what's going on at this time. I mean, Babylon had destroyed the nation. One would be hard-pressed to call to mind a more difficult time than this. And do you know what that tells us? That tells us that there is no circumstance so bleak. There is no tragedy so great. There is no affliction so evil that God's love and mercy and faithfulness could not permeate. There is misplaced hope, but there is never misplaced hope in God. And do you know why that is? Jeremiah knows. This isn't just poetry. This is prophetic utterance. Hope in God is never misplaced because it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases because his mercies never come to an end because great is his faithfulness. In the midst of judgment, Jeremiah focuses, he centers his attention on the love and mercy of God. 
In other words, he, as all of us as believers, should see judgment as a loving and merciful thing. It's an indication that God is setting all things right. Now, I can recall particular times in my life when my behavior as a young child derailed to some degree, right? I was going off script. I was confused. I was upset. I was disobedient. And it was a loving thing for my father to restore me through discipline. If God did not love his erring children who had wandered far from him, he would just leave them to their own devices. Instead, according to Hebrews 12, 6, he disciplines the one he loves. Now, you might have gotten up this morning, or perhaps you're just going through a season of life where it just has been a real trial, where it feels like it's been a while since you felt like tomorrow would be brighter than yesterday. You might long for a different time or a different place. You might long for less sin and less evil in this world. And you may wonder if it's just too late at this point. I'm sure there was many an Israelite in Jeremiah's day who did too. But guess what? It says that God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, every morning, not just on the sunny days, not just in the easy seasons, even in dark seasons, we can look forward to what God is doing. But in order for us to do so, we need to stop solely looking around at our circumstances and start looking up to the one who is sovereign over those circumstances. Do you see what is going on in your life as from the hand of God? Let me ask that again. Do you see whatever is going on in your life as from the very hand of God? Is he taking you through a season of trial so that you would develop a deeper and more abiding faith in him? I want you to keep in mind that Jeremiah was not necessarily reaping judgment for his own sins, but he did suffer alongside of those who were being judged just the same. God left him to be his witness for those who were under God's judgment. Through trial, his faith remained steadfast because he knew that God was steadfast. He knew that God was with him. He says in verse 24 that the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. Jeremiah's hope was not in the repentance of Israel. Jeremiah's hope was not in the mercy of Babylon. Jeremiah's hope was not in any other worldly means. His hope was in the unchanging love of the sovereign God of the universe. Can we say the same? I don't need to hope in a vaccine. I don't need to hope in a political candidate on either side of the divide to make things right. I don't need to hope that those around me are always going to do right by me. I don't need to hope and fill in the blank to be whole. None of those things will be of any real consequence if I can say with Jeremiah that the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. I mean, surely I can pray for all of those things. But my hope should be in my Savior and not in my situation. Paul in Romans 8.31 reminds us that if God is for us, who can be against us? As one commentator says, grace glows in the dark. Light shines brightest in darkness. 
Martin Luther King once said, but I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. We consider our affliction. We consider God's faithfulness and we consider God's unseen goodness in verses 25 and 26. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So verses 25 and 26 reminds us of our own finiteness, of our own limited understanding. Many a person thinks that they know better than everyone, even God sometimes, though they might not admit that. And when they pray, they expect the answer they hope for. And when it fails to come in the way they expect, they assume that God's either impotent or unconcerned, and that just cannot be further from the truth. You know the old adage, right? That good things come to those who wait. Well, here we see in verse 25, one of the oldest examples of that saying, the Lord, it says, is good to those who wait for him. There's this requirement for patience and a continual seeking. And when we seek the Lord, we can expect one of three answers, right? Yes, no, or wait. And how are we to wait? Well, according to this text, there's two ways that we're called to wait. Number one, we seek him while waiting, meaning that we keep checking in with God. We need to stay engaged. We need to be diligent in our spiritual disciplines. We need God more than ever in those hard times. We need to be reading scripture and praying and serving and gathering together as believers in worship, even when we don't feel like it, singing and making melody to the Lord, even if it's a lament that we're singing. So we seek him. And then secondly, we sit quietly while waiting. This should be the spirit of how we wait. There should be a spirit of reverence in our seeking, not this demanding, spoiled, child, stomp my feet kind of insistence for my way, but there's this respectful approach because God is God and we're not. Parents, you know how unlikely you are or were, right, to acquiesce to your child's desires when they were demanding or disrespectful. We must remember our place as creatures as we approach our creator. And what do we wait for? Well, it tells us the salvation of the Lord. That's it. That is our promised hope. In other words, believers must take this long view of suffering. Temporary trial is just that. It's temporary. And God has a purpose to it that undoubtedly goes beyond our understanding. Now, I'll I'll confess to you, I really don't know what God is doing in this season, but I do know this. What good would positive resolution to temporary problems be if a much larger problem loomed? Let me tell you what I mean by that. If Judah had its way, Babylon never would have come. And what would they have lost as a result? Their salvation. They would have continued in their idolatry. They would have unrelentingly persisted in child sacrifice to false gods and perverse sexual practice. And their hellish perversions would not only have produced a national hell on earth, but eventual hell eternal for the people of God. We have to stop seeing things from our limited perspective and earnestly start to seek seeing things from God's perspective because he has our best interest at heart far more than we do. 
And so we consider our affliction, we consider God's continual faithfulness, we consider God's unseen goodness, and once we do, we can then capitulate, as we see in verses 27 through 33, that is to capitulate or submit to the yoke of suffering in verses 27 through 30. He said, it's good for, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So Jeremiah starts by saying that bearing a yoke, which is another way of saying surrender, is a good thing. I think which is kind of what the opposite of what we would think, right? We would think, well, I don't want to give any ground. I, I don't want to surrender. I might be willing to die on every hill, especially when I'm young. Because it's common in youth to think that we know better. The Proverbs are replete with this idea. Proverbs 7 tells of a youth without sense. Proverbs 22:15 tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Therefore, it would be good for youth to surrender to the discipline of God early in his or her life to avoid a lot of heartache in order to be prepared to deal with whatever is going to come his or her way. We see this happening in history at the very same time that Jeremiah is lamenting and preaching this. We see this with four youth taken into captivity in Babylon with Daniel and his friends who submitted to the yoke of suffering that God gave them and God miraculously took them through that. But many do not learn this lesson early. And there is no fool like an old fool, as the saying goes, because you would expect that an older person would know better by now. But how could they if they never surrendered? And so the question's begged, well, how do we bear the yoke? How do we surrender? Well, verses 28 through 30 tells us how. We're given three ways. Number one, we are to be submissive in suffering, or it says, sit alone in silence when it is laid upon you, verse 28. In other words, we are to bear up under suffering quietly when God allows it in our lives. We're not to fight him. We're not to complain about it. We're not to try to cast that suffering onto others with loud moans and groans asking like Peter when Jesus tells him that he's going to go suffer. Well, what about this man over here as he references the other disciple, John? No, we are to accept suffering quietly as coming from the very hand of God who places that yoke upon you. Because suffering accords with reality. Jesus says as much in John 16, He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, let me give this as a caveat. Surely there is a time and there is a place and there is a way of going about getting help from others as we fight against the abuses that we see others suffering from. I'm not telling people to stay in a relationship that's abusive. But when it comes to God, we should quietly, quietly come before God in our suffering and be submissive. We should submit unto God. So we are to be submissive in suffering. Secondly, we are to be humble in suffering. That's what it means to put your mouth in the dust that there may be hope, according to verse 29. In other words, it would be better for us to bow our face in the dirt in worshipful acceptance rather than to defiantly buck the yoke of suffering that God has put upon us. Because if God is the one who is putting this yoke upon you, 
No amount of effort is going to remove it. And so we say with 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Therefore, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Speaking of humility, Thomas Akempis once said, the humble man enjoys peace in the midst of many vexations because his trust is in God, not in the world. The humble man enjoys peace in the midst of many vexations because his trust is in God, not in this world. Trust in God brings harmony despite whatever troubles. In his book on humility, Andrew Murray warns us of the consequences for failing to heed the call to humility when he says, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. So we are to be submissive in suffering. We're to be humble in suffering. And thirdly, we are to be willing to accept mistreatment in suffering. Verse 30 says, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. If we will not be humbled, we might be humiliated. But we need to know that all of our mistreatment has a purpose. God's not a Jerry Springer or a Mari Povich type who capitalizes on or exploits his people by needlessly inflicting pain for someone else's amusement. No. His purpose in this call to be willing to accept mistreatment is to break the vicious cycle of abuse that undoubtedly comes when we retaliate against others. Jesus himself builds upon this idea of how we are to treat those who mistreat us in Luke 6, 27 through 29, when he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, same idea as we see here in Jeremiah, right? To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And why? so that your reward would be great. Any unredeemed sinner can do good to those who do good to them. God does not call us to do that which is natural. He calls us to do that which is supernatural, something that requires his strength, something that can only come when we take upon his yoke. Unless you think that yoke might crush you, Jesus tells us, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's rest in the midst of suffering. There's peace in doing it God's way. So be submissive. Be humble, be willing to be mistreated, capitulate to the yoke of suffering in verses 27 through 30, that you would capitulate to the will of God in verses 31 through 33. He says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. I want you to notice, first of all, the judgment will end. Suffering does not have the final word. God does. 
This too will pass. We need to keep telling ourselves that. This too will pass. Remind yourself of that because his compassion and steadfast love is greater than the punishment afflicted. He will act within his good character. He will not allow you to suffer beyond suffering's intended purpose. That's what it means when he says he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. The Hebrew word used here for willingly means wholeheartedly. In other words, God's heart is not into punishing you. Like a good parent, he would rather you learn the lesson without the punishment. But like a good parent, he will do what he must. He's described here as compassionate and unfailingly loving, even in affliction, or maybe even especially in affliction. In the last days of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, chronicled in Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah says to the king, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation who will not serve the king of Babylon? In other words, surrender. God's prophet Jeremiah asks God's people Judah to submit to the will of a king, the king of Babylon, who hated God, who thought he was his own God, who sought to destroy and enslave God's people. Zedekiah, though, failed to heed Jeremiah's prophetic word. And as a result, Zedekiah was taken captive. His family was murdered in front of him. His eyes were gouged out and they were and then he was taken into Babylon in captivity. What Zedekiah and the people did not see was that surrender would lead to salvation. Now, perhaps people, Christians, perhaps in our own day, fail to see the same. Some would say, why should I submit to some of these things I'm seeing going on? Why should I submit to progressive politicians who do not honor God with their lives and with their policies? Why should I submit to fill in the blank? And to that question, I ask the question, has God ceased to be sovereign? Has he ceased to be in control of the godless? Will he not work his will despite the ill will of others? Surely he will. As is the case with Babylon, sometimes God institutes a less than God honoring authority as a means of bringing about trial and judgment. What is our call in that? What are we to do? Well, first Timothy tells us that we pray for them. How will we respond? Let us prayerfully consider whether or not our failure to surrender to those whom God has placed in authority is a failure to submit to him. Now, I don't know why all this has happened over the last couple of years. Perhaps we are under the judgment of God. I mean, after all, we have fallen far, but surely the same God who brought his people out of bondage and captivity from Egypt and later Babylon, the same God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die as the payment for our sins and raised him to new life as, as the promise that we too will be raised to new life as the same God who can do what he will and lead us through anything. But if you go the way of King Zedekiah, failing to heed God, failing to heed God's word, your end will be hell both here and for eternity. You see, his mercies are not new every morning for everyone. 
They are for those who can say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope. Therefore, I will trust in him. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now as the hymn goes. And when you do trust him, when you turn from your em the emptiness of your sin and self-reliance, you can say with the apostle Paul, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond all comprehension. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. God, I pray that you would give us such a perspective to know that trial prepares us for something bigger than this world. Like an athlete who builds muscle by straining muscle, let the believer trust in God by the strain of suffering. Through it all, let us never forget that his steadfast love never ceases. God loves you, even in trial. Let us never forget that grace glows in the dark. And since the Lord will not cast off forever, since our suffering is not eternal, why not bear up under the yoke now and learn all that God wants to teach?